Hello and welcome to Lab Roving. My name is Dr George Busby and I'm a malaria geneticist at Oxford University. This podcast is all about the Mobile Malaria Project, which took me and my team 7,500 kilometres across the African continent. We wanted to learn about some of the cutting-edge research currently being done on malaria in the countries we visited. And on this podcast, you can hear conversations with some of the people we met along the way. For some background on malaria and the Mobile Malaria Project, check out our first episode trailer. This is the second conversation for Lab Roving from Zambia. We really enjoyed our time there, as it was our first opportunity to really test the portable DNA sequencing machines in the field. We also spent a great week at the National Malaria Elimination Centre and learned a lot about the situation of malaria in Zambia. In a moment, we'll hear from Dr Dan Bridges, a scientist working for an NGO called PATH that is embedded within Zambia's national control programme. Although British, he runs a lab of African scientists that have used a range of different techniques in the past to help support malaria control. He has a deep knowledge of malaria in Zambia, and I really enjoyed spending time with him and his team, learning from them all about Zambia and trying to get the DNA sequencing machines to work up in Ndola, three hours up the road from their main lab in Lusaka. Okay, we're in the Land Rover lab roving and I've got Dan Bridges with me. Dan, tell me a bit about your job. Uh, so I work for um, a company called Path, a non-profit based out of Seattle, um, and I'm on a project of theirs called Masepa, which is the Malaria Control and Elimination Partnership for Africa. Um, my role is as a scientist is to help support Ministry of Health in their in the laboratory, and particularly to try and harness molecular tools to continue um, the fight against against malaria. So bringing in systems that are generally developed um, in labs outside and then applying them to the local context and using that to try and drive policy um, so that we can be as effective as we can and to assess how we're, how we're doing in our various interventions. So we've been working with you for the last couple of, uh, for the last week or so, working in your lab in uh, Lusaka. Tell me a bit about what your lab actually does on a day-to-day basis. So our lab um, has grown quite a bit in the last few years. Um, we've really tried to, um, I guess, uh, there's, a, there's a few areas. One is increasing sensitivity of detection. So um, we know that as transmission drops, there can be this asymptomatic reservoir. So people who have the parasite but um, aren't sick or aren't seeking treatment. And often that's associated with low levels of parasites in the blood. Um, so someone who's sick with malaria will come into a clinic and they often have large numbers of parasite and you can easily identify them. When you're talking more about this asymptomatic population, uh, it's it's harder to detect those parasites and so we're really sort of trying to standardise methodologies that give us more sensitivity so we don't miss so much of the um, reservoir of um, of parasites so that's one aspect of it then it's trying to move from sort of a binary outcome of like someone is infected or someone is not infected to can we can we tell something about the parasite that they're infected with we've been exploring more basic genotyping so this would be first of all just trying to see if we can predict what the parasite is like um, so whether it's got drug resistance markers so then the other area of genotyping would be trying to link parasites together so can we say with any confidence that person a is infected or has the same source of infection as person b and if so what does that tell us about how we should be tackling uh, infection or outbreak um, so we've been using it particularly in terms of reactive case detection so where someone comes to the clinic the assumption is that 
if that person is positive, then they represent a local transmission hotspot or a higher risk population. And so sending teams or sending community health workers back to that index case and testing and treating people around that person. But it could just be that anyone who's found positive in that area could just have a lifestyle that means that they're more exposed. It doesn't mean that transmission is happening there. And so using genetics to try and link them together to say, yes, there is a common source and therefore we are identifying people who are at higher risk. And again, particularly in low transmission settings where you're really looking for maybe not a needle in a haystack, but less than 1% sort of positivity rates, you have to test an awful lot of people to get any kind of decent numbers of infected individuals that you then treat. Zambia has a very ambitious malaria elimination target of 2021. You've just been talking about how important molecular tools are in low transmission settings. Is the idea that you try and eliminate malaria in low transmission and then then kind of push the the line of malaria sort of up the country? Because at the moment, I guess, the, the more south you are in the country, the lower the transmission. Yeah, broadly speaking. So I think there's two phases. A few years back, the real focus was on how do you go from very low levels to zero? Zambia has been very successful in scaling up for impact, so Sufis, just realizing that we actually have some very good tools, nets, IRS, good case management, good drugs. If you put in that package of interventions, you actually get phenomenal success rates and you can drive it down. The question was, okay, if we drive it down to low levels, can we get to zero? So there was a big focus on that. And I think increasingly the answer is yes, you can get to zero. It takes longer than perhaps you would like it to. And it involves high vigilance and maintaining will. You know, there are challenges around that when it starts dropping off the sort of radar in terms of numbers of cases. But it's very important to do that because there will be resurgence. That's very clear. Now, I think the emphasis is joining all the dots together. We've got the um, scaling up for impact in high um, transmission settings we've got sort of we can get to very low or or zero almost in low settings and then how do you make a continuum of those so tying it together and I think where molecular tools really come in is being able to continue some of the traditional methods of measuring transmission providing alternative metrics that just aren't possible I mean in a recent study we tested 7,000 children under 15 in southern province and we, we got a handful of cases, you know, 10, 10 cases or so. That just isn't possible to measure your progress if you have to check 7,000 kids every time you want to see if you've had an impact. And even with 7,000, it, it's not really enough numbers to really gauge with any confidence how your interventions are going. Looking for other tools, other methodologies, so that you can get more information from every case, that you can infer a lot more. And we're not just looking on the genetic side, we're also looking at um, markers for exposure to malaria, so human antibody responses. Whenever you get an infection, you produce an immune response. If we use different target antigens, can we use that to sort of estimate the window of infection? You know, some antigens produce a very strong long-lived response others are much shorter and weaker so if we find someone with a short and weak immune response it's likely that they're infected in the recent past rather than 10 years before or something but then again combining it with as many metrics as you can to triangulate your position you know i think a lot of these are um, relatively new technologies particularly when applied to public health and changing policy you want to be sure that the read that you're getting is not well that it's that it's on so having these different indicators and if we see they're all moving in a certain direction even if there is some noise in some um, you can be fairly confident that 
you're moving in the right direction. So I think what you're trying to say is that the more data you have, the more you can try and focus and target your interventions. What are the challenges to developing bigger data sets and more broad and different types of data sets? So I think that there's a whole bunch of challenges. I mean, one is obviously the ability to create the data in the first place. I mean, the assays and so on. That's why the, the nanopore technology actually having it in country. And I think, again, talking about a continuum of interventions and packages and uh, metrics, that needs to be informed on a not real time, but it needs to be a fairly rapid iterative process. And I think so. a big focus has been ensuring that samples are processed wherever possible in country. So with Nanopore, we now have the potential to start exploring that space, getting it in country and being reactive. Uh, so I think instead of it being um, having to anticipate exactly where a project's going to go, setting up systems to send samples out, instead I think we can be much more reactive in the future. So yeah, I mean, there's the lab side or the um, data management side, but I think I think a huge part is creating a culture for consumption of data. And I, I think integrating data so that it gives clear outputs. A lot of the nuance is great at the for a lab scientist. They're going to appreciate that side of things, but maybe not appreciate what it means in terms of public health. And similarly, someone making policy is not going to appreciate the finer details of some of the laboratory side. So I think, again, it's, it's learning how to integrate these different signals to translate them into a language that is understandable for the different levels of the ministry, the different levels of the research, and creating a clear message from it. We've now been working in this space for a number of years, and creating clear outcomes is is critical. Otherwise, it's, it's not seen what the value is, and it's also confusing as to what, what should we do about it. So that is a major challenge. I think a lot of the other challenges can, are very solvable. I mean, we've worked hard on making sure that, that there's standardization of data capture, um, that reporting is standardised and that it, and that data is also not siloed, so that it is shared. But again, thinking about what level of granularity needs to be shared is important because more is not more. Um, you know, sometimes you need to just pare it down to the key message coming through. What are the challenges for Zambia over the next few years and what are you going to be concentrating on? Um, so for the next few, yeah, gosh, um, I think again, I mean, there is this grand aim you know to eliminate i think that again it's perhaps getting away from the idea that we can predict every step of it we're trying to anticipate what we can and we're particularly i'm particularly interested in identifying threats to the current way that things are going to progress so so we have these tools that are very effective so what are the threats to them working or not working or how can we make sure that we utilize them as effectively as possible so there's been a lot of mass drug administration and that obviously raises the spectre of selection for drug resistance. So we want to be at the forefront of monitoring for drug resistance, not in a focused way where we just look where there's a problem, but that we actually prospectively go out and we're monitoring it. Proper molecular surveillance, I think, is is critical to ensuring that anecdotal evidence of treatment failures aren't blown up into we need to change tack. But similarly, that we don't continue headlong into a a selection process whereby we only realise there's a problem when it's actually really bad. So that's certainly one area. We rely heavily on rapid diagnostic tests, while microscopy is still a a fantastic tool. I think increasingly uh, there's challenges around it, not so much in high transmission areas where people see parasites on a regular basis, but in low transmission settings where have health centres which haven't seen a case in a year or two years. 
um, it's very difficult to maintain the skills necessary um, and the enthusiasm. So rapid diagnostic tests are very important. There's already evidence in Congo that there are, you know, the parasite has mutated to delete that gene. Whether that selection process is really happening, we're not sure whether it's just a natural variant. There is some evidence um, from the matcha group that it's possible there could be some deletions here, but again, it's a threat to our current interventions. Um, and then, of course, we haven't spoken about the mosquito side of things, so we're also very interested in monitoring changes in, uh, in insecticide resistance levels. Uh, Zambia has been very good at rotating insecticides they're about to rotate um, a number I think doing it in a systematic way there's a, there's a lot of gaps in data and there will always be gaps but I think trying to really get representative samples have it prospectively monitored even if you don't anticipate even if you don't expect to see a problem being confident that that there isn't a problem is is very important and then having the ability to respond when something comes up that is potentially um, troubling I think having a all in, so again this reactive side of things I think is really important at the moment we don't have the ability to maybe now we do with nanopore but you know we, we've been sending samples out for sequencing that takes time and it, it would be just an awful lot easier if we could say okay there's a potential problem here let's go out and let's just see if there is and we can have the results very quickly and we can respond accordingly so just quickly on RDTs rapid diagnostic tests we went to a malaria clinic the day before yesterday People turn up to the clinic because they've got a bit of a fever, they're a bit sick in the morning, and the first thing that happens to them is they get RDT'd for malaria. And whilst we were there, over 50% of the people that turned up had a positive RDT, and that meant that they could go and get malaria treatment immediately. So they were sort of triaged into a malaria queue, everyone else went into a different queue. There is a real problem if these RDTs stop working, right? Which is is what, what might happen if there's a particular genetic mutation that causes the protein that these tests are based on to not be present in individuals that's a real problem right and the problem is that you then get people who are walking around with malaria and you can't really diagnose them so you can't treat them and then they'll continue the transmission yeah yeah no that is a that is a huge threat and so again um we're it's quite a difficult thing to look for like in that clinic you know with 50 percent positive there's not so many negatives kind of thing but in other clinics there may be one in a hundred that are positive and so do you screen all 99 negatives yeah so there there are challenges around that i think that so our aim is to also utilize some of the historical collections to see whether there is any problem so we're we're in the process of setting up a biobank which consists of basically taking all of the samples that have been collected historically and cataloging them properly so that again if we if we find evidence for a problem we can go back and look well when did this start how much has it spread how quickly did it spread are there any other factors that that are really informative for what our response should be to this problem so it's trying to put the work in so that we can react to what's happening on a time scale that's appropriate to an intervention or change of policy great thanks dan we are sitting in the land rover and we've been playing around with some of the kit trying to run it in very not quite remote regions but away from labs and we've had some success yeah but as a final question what do you think about the idea of a not necessarily a car with a lab in it but the mobile or portable genetic lab equipment that we we can use and actually we're in the land rover but we're actually sitting in a hotel car park (laughs) and jason is up in a room trying to run some stuff up there the point is that you can run this stuff anywhere potentially Is, is that is that something that you see a lot of utility for in the future? I mean, I think it's a niche area. 
I can think of a few examples where you may want to do that. So a good example would be every two years, Zambia runs a therapeutic efficacy study. And it generally takes a year or more to analyze the data and have an answer as to whether treatment failures are really treatment failures or reinfections. And that's critical. If we've lost a year, that could be a year of selection, a year of spreading. Currently, our mechanisms are not actually trying to pin down genotypic drug resistance, to be honest. It's actually looking for the identity of the parasite between the point that they were diagnosed and the point where there was either a recrudescence or a reinfection. I can foresee that it would be very useful to be in the field and monitoring those treatment failures as and when they come up to say, right, we actually do have a problem. And we don't just have a problem because we can infer it. We can actually read the genetic code and see that there are these mutations. That to me is a real sort of, you know, parasite caught red-handed as opposed to an inference where it appears that they were very similar. But that doesn't prove that it is, it is an the identical parasite that has recrudesced. Um, so that is one of the examples. I think also the ability to bring something tangible to people is very important. The lab is seen as often a black box and it's not really well understood. The ability to actually take the technology out of the lab, even if it's not to generate data, but to bring it to people, to show them. While it might appear gimmicky, it actually leads to a lot of buy-in. And... So I know sending samples out, it's it's difficult to get excited about sequencing when all you get are lists of A, C, Gs and Ts. But if you actually are interacting with the, the machinery that makes that, it, it does make it more tangible and more understandable and more relatable. So I, I think that even if it doesn't have a huge market for actual mobile sequencing, the ability to to get buy-in is is really key and then of course because it's mobile it means that you can and because of the cost factor it means that you can deploy it in multiple centers at once so instead of relying on the centralized repository instead you can uh, allow people to grow into it and adopt it at early stage and let them trial fail you know as as it grows and so in a sense it's sort of a selection process for those who are really interested and those who are uh, motivated and it, it allows that you know lower barrier of entry i think yeah cool all right well thanks a lot dan and good luck for the future thank you very much thanks what i found really interesting about our chat was how people in zambia are trying to translate genetic data into information for malaria control as we heard this is not particularly easy and there are challenges around communicating complex science simply as well as deploying expensive technology in the field. This is something that is close to my heart as it relates to my day job in Oxford. As the science we use gets more complex, we have a duty to communicate our results in ways that can be understood and used by the people that that science impacts. Just as in Namibia, it was great to get some insight into how transmission, which describes the amount of malaria there is in a place, changes, and how the way that you control malaria has to change as well. For instance, Like Dan said, the old, well-known interventions, like bed nets and spraying, do a great job at reducing transmission right down. But there is clearly a need for more sophisticated new tools to be used to find those last few people with malaria. It's also clear that in Zambia, the National Malaria Elimination Centre and Dan's team are embracing the potential of molecular tools like DNA sequencing, while still keeping an eye on how they can embed these within their current processes. Finally, Dan's comments on the benefits to public engagement of having a load of science equipment with you in the field were really well received, at least by me. 
I personally enjoyed describing the whole process from collecting samples to generating data using all the props and kit that we had working in and around the car. It really, really helped us to explain what we were doing. So that was us in Zambia. We left Ndola for a long drive up through Tanzania and into Kenya. We had planned to visit a research institute in Tanzania, but we couldn't get the timings to work as the Easter holiday was upon us. So our next major stop was in Kasumu in Kenya. See you next time. Lab Roving was recorded in Africa and Oxford and is written and produced by me, George Busby. A massive thank you to the Mobile Malaria Project team, Jason Hendry and Isaac Ginnai, without whom the project just simply would not have happened. Music for Lab Roving is by Dylan Joseph via Epidemic Sounds.